Okay. I have um, a couple of guys I've asked to pass out a couple papers. These are some handouts for tonight's lesson. Um, I wrote these just to kind of help everyone have the scriptures to reference without having to try to write them down real fast as I'm reading through them. I've left some space there for you to take notes. And while they're passing those out, if everyone would turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to read verse 34 and 35. Should be very familiar since we opened with these verses last Wednesday also. John chapter 4, verse 34, it goes like this. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And then Matthew chapter 9, 37 and 38, the other passage we opened up with last week. Verse 37 of Matthew 9 says, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to open our hearts and our mind to your word. Let that word fall on good ground, Lord. Let it grow and produce fruit in due season. Help us to be hearers and doers of the word, Lord Jesus. Let your word change us and let us never try to change it. We give you all glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this month we are, we've been doing a series on Lord of the Harvest. And Pastor Powell opened up on that first uh, message kind of talking about Matthew chapter 9 and that text there where he goes out and he, before he even sees a need, he goes and as he identifies the need, then he meets that need. Last week, if you recall, we discussed the law of the laborer as it found in Matthew chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, if you were here last week, it was a little bit of a um, more sobering message, if you will. And I told Pastor Powell actually later on that those types of messages scare me. The reason I say that is because I don't ever want to be guilty of God saying, you're a hypocrite. You're up here saying all of this stuff, but are you doing all of this stuff? So I just want you to know when I say those kind of things, it's not something light and flippant that I just spit it out there. Because trust me, a lot of self-reflection goes on before, during, and after as well. But here's the good thing, that God doesn't expect perfection within us, right? We cannot be perfect in our current form, but we can always be better, becoming more and more conformed to his image. So tonight, I want to talk about Lord of the Harvest, learning to labor, learning to labor. Tonight's message is going to be a little bit more application-based than, say, last week's was. Um, I've Given everyone handouts, as I mentioned, has the verses on there, some space for you to jot down notes. If you miss anything that I say, the good news is it's recorded. You can always go back and listen to it again if you want to hear a certain part. But I want to open up. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20. So everyone will want to turn there, and it's written on your paper there as well. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20. One of the things that I think can become uh, maybe a, a bit of contention, if you will, is sometimes we come to church and we hear messages or, or maybe we hear them online or wherever the case is about, you know, being called to be a laborer in the harvest of God. And we're called to do that. But if all we ever hear is we're called to be a laborer, but no one ever takes the time or we don't take the time to figure out how are we to be a laborer, there's a difference between laboring and working. And I think sometimes we conflate the two, and they're not the same. See, if you go to a fast food restaurant, and they're paying the laborer, the worker, I should say, the worker there, 10 bucks an hour, although I think it's 15 now, but paying these, the workers 15 bucks an hour, they are going to work to the rate of $15 an hour. When the shift is over, they clock out, they go home. But a laborer is someone who is looking at a job, not as a job just for money, but they're looking at a job because it has an outcome. It has a purpose, a goal. So someone who labors in a field, if you will, let's say a farmer, they're looking at it not just from, oh, this year I'm going to get a good yield, but no, this is how I provide for my family. So the labor is far more than just the work, just the couple of hours out in the field. 
And that is the way it is when we talk about being a laborer in God's harvest. And we're going to kind of suss this out a little bit more tonight. So let's look at Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to read most of the chapter. I'll kind of interject as we go along here. But we're going to start in verse 1. This is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. I'm going to pause already. I want you to highlight, mentally take note, however you want to do it. There's a very specific phrase I want you to see here. At the end of verse 1, it says that this man, he went out to hire laborers into his vineyard. The laborers didn't own the vineyard. They were hired for a purpose, to do a job, but the vineyard belonged to the man and not the workers or the laborers. Verse 2 And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, I will give you. And they went their way and went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? Verse 7, They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. Let's pause there for just a moment. What we've seen here is a repeating phrase. So here is this man who owns this vineyard. He goes out, he hires some laborers. They agree upon a price of a penny a day. And they're happy to be, uh, you know, to be earning money, to be being productive. And then about the third hour of the day, which would probably have been closer to about 9 o'clock in the morning, he goes out, finds some more workers, brings them in, and repeats this throughout the day until he gets to the 11th hour, or if you want to think of it this way, almost at the very end of the shift. So we're almost at the very end of the day with little daylight left, little bit of work left to be done. But he still goes out and he offers all of them this phrase. He doesn't say to them out front. He doesn't say, okay, you're going to get a penny a day and you're going to get a penny a day. He says, whatsoever is right, that's what you will receive. Well, if you're like me, my first thought is, well, who determines what's right? What is, like, like, I don't think I would accept a job like, Oh, yeah, we'd like to hire you, and uh, whatever's right, we'll pay you that. Well, whose right are we using? Because my right may be a little different than your right by a couple zeros. So imagine that now, though. Okay, take that context, if you will, because what we're going to see unfold here, and most of you are somewhat familiar with this, when you think of it in that way, it makes a little more sense. And this is why we get into this disparity between being just a worker versus being a laborer in God's kingdom. Because it's that former mindset that sometimes causes us problems. Okay? Let's look on here. It says, verse 8, So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that They should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. Verse 11, And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Pause there before we get into the explanation. So imagine this. You get called onto a job, and you go out in the beginning of the day in the heat, and you are working your tail off. You are out there, and you are laboring in the heat and in the sun, and you're doing all of this work. And little by little throughout the day, you see new, fresh people who aren't as tired as you, who haven't endured as much as you, who haven't had as much, you know, a, a, a physical labor happening each hour or so goes by, there's more people. And then 
to add insult to injury, you get to the end of the day, no doubt you are tired, you're ready for this to be over, you're ready to reap the fruits of your labor, and then you notice that the people that came on at the very end are going to get the same benefit as you who's been working the whole day. I can understand why they would be mad. And the truth is, is I know that most of you can also. The reason why I know that is because, first of all, we're all human beings, right? We all have that, that sense, if you will, good, good, bad, or indifferent. We all have that sense of like, oh, no, 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 I did more. You, you need to pay me more. Where the conflict comes in is all the way back to the first verse. You remember what I said, take note, in that very first verse, the last three words. This man came out and he hired laborers into his vineyard. Since it was his vineyard, he was the one who determined what work needed to be done. Because it was his vineyard, he was the one who determined who he hired, when he hired, how much he paid them. His choosing to pay these other people was not dependent on what the other workers thought because it was not their vineyard. And the thing that happens is sometimes in this environment right here, okay, I'm going I'm to just make this very like real to us right here in this moment. Here's what can happen. You come into church and you spend a lot of time, time, blood, sweat, tears, energy, conflicts, working towards something. This, whatever this thing is, turns into its own ministry, if you will. And yet somewhere throughout that process, the pastor, whoever that may be, asks them, someone else, hey, I would like for you to, to head up this ministry. Just, just think about what you would feel, right? You've been working, doing all of this stuff for this, this ministry, and then now it comes to, it's set, we're ready to have somebody running it, and someone else has chosen to run it. It would hurt my feelings. I'm, I'm just, I'm human. I have, I have pride just like anyone else. I have an ego, right? And my initial thoughts going to be, wait, 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 wait. I spent all this time working, doing all of this, like doing all the groundwork, dealing with all the people, and now here we are, and yet someone else is running this now. But the reason that my feelings would get hurt in that moment is because in that moment, I've forgotten whose vineyard it is. You see, I look at it and say, well, no, 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 that's my baby. That I worked for that. Well, I'm glad you worked for it, but you don't own it. Because you could not purchase the price of the vineyard. You could not purchase salvation, right? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about souls. You couldn't purchase that. I couldn't purchase that. So it's not our vineyard. It's outside of our purview to understand exactly why God does some of the things that he does. But that takes us back to my very opening statement. Even when we don't understand, God is still good. Even if you don't know why that thing has happened, it's still good if God is the one doing it. Okay. Let's go on now. To verse 13. So now they're all worked up, they're all upset, and they're coming to the vineyard owner, and they're like, hey man, what's happening? Why, why are you doing this? And listen to what, what he says here in verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me? We already talked about this. I told you in the very beginning, you come work in my vineyard, I'm going to give you a set amount of money. He's like, didn't I say that? And they're like, yes. So verse 14 says, take that thine is... And go thy way, I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few are chosen. Now, this is a parable. We'll see here in a minute, if you read through this chapter, the disciples eventually ask Jesus, they're like, okay, Jesus, why are you speaking in these, these parables, these stories, in front of all these, these crowds of people who are out here? 
you're, you're saying all of these parables and they don't seem to understand. And he tells the disciples what? He says, yeah, listen, they don't understand because they don't even want to listen. Now, I'm not, I don't mean listen to what he's saying, but listening to the authority that he's saying it with. So because of that, they're around for the benefits. They're around for the perks. They're around for the pay, but not necessarily for the labor and the rules that come with it. So he's trying to explain to his disciples. He says, I explain to them in parables because they don't yet understand. They don't yet understand. But I'm going to tell you what it, what it means because you have agreed to work in this vineyard with me no matter what the cost is. And even they had a hard time with this off and on, right? Many times they had to come, keep coming back and asking Jesus to explain further. Here in verse 17, listen to what it says. And Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the 12 disciples apart in the way and saith unto him, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's, uh, of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. What he, and he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They saith unto him, We are able. Pause for a moment. What parable was just said right before this happened? The parable about how that the people who were working in the Lord's vineyard did not understand why people were being paid the same even though they had different work. They didn't understand because they weren't the owner of the vineyard. And yet here what we see happening in, in, in actuality, not in parable form, but is this mother bringing her two children who no doubt wants the best for them, but not understanding what it was that Jesus was trying to do, was offering up her two sons. Oh yes, let them be with you in your vineyard on your right and your left in this great place. And Jesus is kind of telling her like, you don't know what you're actually asking me to do. Because he was the only one who could purchase the vineyard. He was the only one who understand the cost that was about to happen to him in order to purchase that vineyard. He knew that he was going to be betrayed and whipped, hung on a cross, deserted by his own friends, and left to die. He knew that price and he was willing to pay it. But he knew that these two boys did not understand the cost to purchase this vineyard. And so we see in this moment how that mankind, even in their zeal, if you will, to do something great, sometimes we become blinded by what we see in the immediate, that we don't realize that what's really happening in the spirit behind it. Sometimes we see like, oh, this is a position, this is a title, this is a benefit, therefore God wants me to have it. But what you don't see is what's about to happen down the road. The trial, the tribulation, the cost that that position is going to demand. And God wants to make sure that whoever is doing whatever the task is, that they are treating his vineyard appropriately. Because at the end of the day, it's not about you or me. It's about the vineyard. We'll talk a bit here and a little bit more about what that really means. I think most of you probably already get what I'm trying to get at, but... But we'll discuss that a little further. So now, we see this happening. Jesus telling the mother of these two sons, and hey, you guys really don't understand what you're even asking. And then listen to this. So we get to verse 23. Verse 23. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. I wish the reason they were moved with indignation against these two is because 
They're like, how dare you try to put yourself on the same level as, as our master? How dare? But that's not why they were mad. They were mad because who are these two to come in and try to like claim the seat on the right and left hand? And we, we, we've been here too. We've been walking with Jesus and seeing all this other stuff. So why, why do you two think that you get special treatment? You had to have your mom come and ask for you. Let's went 25. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be the chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed them. When I, 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 I've read this, you know, how many times throughout my life, but sometimes when you go back and read passages later in life, after you've experienced more things, experienced mistakes, hardships, loss, blessings, all of it, it sometimes kind of helps to paint the picture a little better as to what all is happening in the, in the scripture. And this part of this story is something that had, had, had unfortunately had to have been a very hard lesson for me to learn. And I mentioned it many times, so forgive me for repeating myself, but I, for me, it's like James. James was, the, was the, the half-brother of Jesus, right? James literally grew up with Jesus, but denied who Jesus was for his entire life until Jesus was crucified and resurrected. When Jesus was resurrected and he appeared back to his brother, James finally figured it out. So when you read in the New Testament where James talks about how that we look in a glass darkly, we don't really understand what it is that we're seeing, he's talking about himself. He's like, look, that was my brother. I was standing face to face with him my whole life, but I didn't understand what I was even looking at. But now that he sees it, his whole life's ministry becomes influenced by the thing that he experienced. What I'm saying is, is that sometimes we come back to verses later in our lives and it reads a little differently because we've learned more, hopefully. We've matured more. We've experienced more. And now we have an even better understanding. And so when I read this passage now, knowing the, the mistakes I've made, the, 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 the things that I've gone through, but yet at the same time, the grace of God to help me through all of that time. And I look at it and I'm like, now... How could I have been so arrogant to think that I need to be the one in charge and I need to be the one running the show? Because I guess at that moment, I didn't even really understand yet that it's not my vineyard. I don't have the power to purchase the vineyard. It's not for me to do that. So Jesus is trying to get them to understand, listen, you're upset because these two are asking for seats of position and I'm trying to tell you, you don't even know what the cost is going to be yet. But they do learn after Christ was crucified, they get the Holy Ghost, and now they understand what that meant. That's why they, they were willing to die a martyr's death for the cause. But they didn't get to that place until they understood what the cost of the vineyard really was. And we would see numerous more times where they talk about the disciples, like, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I'll be first. Will you be first? They go back and forth on this. So... I would like to say they heard that once and got over it and they fixed themselves and they never argued again. But do any of us learn after one time? Not me, I'll tell you that. Definitely not me. I can be a little stubborn occasionally. Don't ask my wife. Just occasionally. So Jesus is telling them this on the heels of all the parables that he teaches. Sometimes when we read through these stories and we see these parables and we're trying to, trying to understand what it all means, the parables were for the people hearing outside of the 12, but the parables were also for the disciples. Because even though the disciples heard it, maybe Jesus told them the meaning of it, they didn't truly understand it until they saw the things start to come to pass. And now they can reflect backwards on these parables and the stories that Jesus told them and the explanations, and it takes on a whole other level. So now, 
he is telling his disciples, this is what you will have to do if you want to be laborers in my vineyard. You ready? If you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. If you want to be the ruler, you have to become the servant. This world says, if you're great, you rule from a throne and make everyone else do the work. But in God's kingdom, you rule from the ground serving others. We're going to talk about why that is here in a bit. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 24. And we're going to talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares. No doubt a parable I'm sure most of you have all heard before. So this will be a little bit of a refresher. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Forgive me for stopping so much. But again, I want you to notice the the words here. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Okay, but while men slept, his enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy fields? From whence then hath it tares? He saith unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Pause right there. We're going to go down to verse 36 here in just a second for the meaning of this parable. If you look at this in the context of what we've just been talking about, here is a man who owns a vineyard, who owns a field. He goes out in the field and he plants good seed. At some point, the men who slept, which if you read into the context of what it's talking about here, those who should have been watching over the field, those who should have been tending to the field, while they slept and weren't paying attention to what was going on, the enemy comes in and casts in bad seeds also. That brings up the tares. So now his workers, the ones who were most likely the ones sleeping and not paying attention when the tares were getting sown in the first place, come to the owner of the field and say, hey, I thought you said you planted good seed in your field. Why are there tares here? And so the owner says, the enemy came in, and while you guys were all sleeping, he planted tares amongst my field. So uh, what I would think is probably a a normal, rational response. They're like, oh, okay, great. Do you want us to go then and get rid of all the tares, right? So let, let us go over there and let's rip all the tares out. But they only see it from the momentary time. Oh, there's tares. Let's get rid of them. But the owner of the field looks at it and says, no, no, no. What you risk by ripping up those few tares is also ruining the good seed along with it. It's better to wait until the harvest and then we will see them fully sprung, fully obvious, and we can separate them at that point. So now we're going to look at what what it is that Jesus was saying in this parable. So look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. 
As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and he shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And if you were ever unsure about pre-trip, post-trip, this should pretty well sum it up for you right here. The first that's going to happen is the tares are going to be taken and then the wheat. That's not the lesson for tonight. Okay, so what does he mean here? So what I want to do is very quickly, I'm going to go down this and we'll, we'll, we'll get ready to kind of wrap this all up here in just a bit. I want to talk about these different players that's mentioned here. Right, The sower, the tares, the weeds, the reapers, all of them. We're going to just kind of go through this real quickly. Because what I hope to do is maybe bring to light a little bit and help us fix how we view the world, how we view sin in general, other people, in the context of what we're supposed to be doing as laborers in God's vineyard. Okay, All right, so let's start first with this. this the sower of the good seed. That's fairly obvious. That, he says that right out. The sower of the good seed is Jesus. He is the son of man. What I think is kind of cool about this, though, is Jesus is the one who sows the good seed, which is the word of God. But Jesus is also the good seed himself. So when he's sowing the good seed into the world, he literally is sowing him, if you will, to the world, to the people. Meaning, he is implanting within this earth redemption for the sin that Adam and Eve have brought. So the sower, unlike how we think as someone who's just throwing things out left and right, Jesus is saying, I have a very specific purpose in what I am doing and sowing the seed. So I'm going to come down and sow the seed by telling these stories, by ministering, by doing miracles, by doing all of this. But that's not the end. I'm going to kind of wrap all of that up, if you will, by sowing into the earth my very flesh. Right? Because after he was crucified, he was then buried in the ground. And then from the ground sprang forth new life, which is the Holy Ghost. I love the Bible because there's so many different illustrations like that. It's just the way my brain thinks, and I think it's really cool. Okay. So we got it. The sower of the good seeds, Jesus. Okay. Let's move on. The field. Now, this one is important. The passage says that the one who sowed the good seeds did so in the field. Jesus says the field is the world. This means that you and I cannot fulfill our role as laborers if the only time we work the field is inside these four walls. The whole earth is his vineyard. Imagine for a moment... Go back to that, that owner of the vineyard who came out and he hired the different people. And he hired and said, hey, you're going to tend to the whole vineyard, okay? I and mean, this is what you're going to get for the pay. Great. So they go and they look at the vineyard and they say, yeah, that's way too much work. Too many briars and thistles over there. So we're only going to do this corner section of the vineyard over here. We'll, we'll do it our best. We will dress it the best way. We will give it the most water. We will do it to the very best. But we're only going to do this section. That's the way we do church. We dress up the best when we come to church. We talk about Jesus the most when we come to church. But this is only one small corner of the vineyard. And while this is important, obviously, we need each other. We, we, we all need one another to build one another up. Iron sharpened iron. All of that is good. But if the only part of the vineyard you tend is right here, you are saying to the master of the vineyard, yeah, 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 I know you said the whole vineyard, but this is a little greener over here, so I'm just going gonna to hang out over here. I don't want to have to stand before God and say, yeah, I didn't think those other seeds were worth tending to, so I just wanted to stay over here where it was a little more comfortable. The wheat. This is anyone who has allowed the seed to be planted in their hearts, and in their faithfulness that seed has brought forth fruit. New life, right? We are the wheat. I hope we're all the wheat. We allow God's word to be planted in us. 
We water it through worship and reading the word and prayer and connecting with others and allow that seed to continue to grow and continue to change us. Okay, well, what about the tares? So Jesus says the tares are the children of the devil. But before you go to work and start calling everyone tares, and please don't go around calling them children of the devil, HR will probably not be very happy with you. You need to understand what Jesus is actually talking about here and what he means when he is saying that there are these tares who are the children of the devil. To really understand this, turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to do 51 through 56. This, this will be fairly quick here. Luke chapter 9, 51 through 56, because this is very, very, very important. We live in a world right now where there is every effort to divide us by all of these insignificant items of race or, or ethnicity or language or money or all of these artificial things that in the end don't really mean anything. But this world is so bent on making us divide ourselves apart from each other, right? And this is why. Listen, Luke chapter 9, 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Pause. If you don't understand the context of what's happening here, this makes zero sense. The Samaritans were looked at as less than. They were typically half Jew and half Gentile. So from the Jewish perspective, these Samaritans were like, yeah, that, they're kind of the outcasts. They're Jews, but they're not really Jews. It's kind of like the Air Force and the military. You know, they're kind of there, but... Sorry, military joke. Okay, so, they, so here they are. They, Jesus is wanting to go to Jerusalem. His disciples, no doubt, said, don't go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. Let's, let's go around. But no, no, Jesus told them, no, we're going through Samaria to get to Jerusalem because there was some work that needed to be done in Samaria also. So he sends forth messengers, some of his disciples. They go forth, they explain, they're, they're looking to get a place for Jesus to be able to stay. Well, when these messengers arrive and they understand what's happening, how this is this teacher who's coming, he's looking to go through Samaria on to Jerusalem, they say, nope, no room at this inn. Can't stay here. So now they come back to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, we went and we told them you were coming and they would not have you. Now listen to their response with this. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You see, if we are not careful, we will look at the tares, who, yes, they are of the children of the devil. Why? Because anyone who is not in Christ, by default, is a children of the devil. There's no other option. You are a child of God or a child of the devil. But they are not the enemy. Those who are lost who are deceived by the world, those who have, you know, made poor choices, whatever the case is, they are not the enemy. But the, the enemy would like you to believe that they are. Because as long as you believe that they are the enemy, then there's this division where you're not going to reach out for them and try to save them. You're going to push them further away. No, we'll stay over here in our four walls of the vineyard and we'll leave all those bad people out somewhere else. And the enemy has been very, very successful at doing this. That's why, I, and I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but the idea that, that churches would separate themselves along some artificial line and say, no, 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 we are a white church, or we are a black church, or we are a wealthy church, is completely against anything that Christ taught. And in fact, unfortunately, shows the efficiency of the enemy to get us twisted away from the true enemy and instead look at those who need us as the enemy. I'd say that's fairly effective because you look anywhere in the world. It's not just here. It's everywhere. It's the world because that is the power and the nature of sin. But 
we cannot be effective laborers in the vineyard if we are looking at those that we're supposed to be reaching as the enemy, right? Laborers in the vineyard do no good going over to the perfectly healthy plant and look at it and say, yeah, you're doing pretty good. Okay, my work's done. You didn't labor over anything. You went, stated the obvious, and went back home. Kind of like what happens sometimes when we come to church on Sunday, clap, go home, and do nothing beyond that. The enemy. So who is the enemy? Now, this one seems fairly straightforward. But I want to make a very important here, point here, and this is already, I'm going to restate something I just said, but I, I want to say it again because it's worth repeating. The enemy is the devil and not the tares. We have to be careful that we don't become so zealous that when we see a sinner walk through the door, because we're so spiritual and we don't like sin, that we end up running the person out of the church because there's sin there. Well, yes, there's sin there. That's why they're here. But sometimes in our human attempts to define what a laborer should be, it makes us act in ways that's against what Christ is trying to get us to do. Hence why when Jesus talked to his disciples and he had said, yeah, listen, the Gentiles, their leaders rule over them. And, and those who have great power, they rule over them. But in this kingdom, if you want to be great, you're going to serve. If you want to be the ruler, you're going to serve others. And so this is kind of explaining why that is the case because to be a laborer means you are having to reach out to a world that's full of sin, to people that are hurting. There is so much stuff happening every day. And we are the ones that are, have to have that message of hope for them. But that takes work. I'll tell you, I, I won't say who it is, although I don't think they would necessarily mind me sharing this story. Um, recently, someone asked me if I had any pointers on how to be, and I'll kind of paraphrase it my own way, uh, to be more effective to witnessing to people out on the job or, or out in, in, in their neighborhood or wherever they're at. What, what can I do to approach them and to win them to God? Okay, so I'm kind of paraphrasing what was said here, but this is the general question. A lot of times when we think about like, oh, I'm going to go out and I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to, to throw out the seed there, right? We're going to go out and do some evangelism. We think of evangelism, okay, we're going to go out to this area. It's a bad area. They need Jesus. So we're going to go knock some doors, invite people to church, and then leave. Is that part of evangelism? Sure. It's important. We, we should be doing that. But listen, that is probably one of the least effective ways overall to conduct evangelism. The number one way to be successful at evangelism, relationship. That's it. That is relationship. Because here's why. It's easy for me to walk up to you and tell you how good I am and how that God's good. It's a whole other thing for me to show you day in and day out that I actually believe that, that I actually am trying to live out the things that I'm preaching to you about, and that I'm willing to own up when I do mess up and say, hey, that was wrong of me. I am sorry. I am telling you, in this world today, being able to say sorry to other people, it does not compute with some people. Like, no, you don't apologize. You don't ever admit that you're wrong. But that's not how the kingdom of God works, right? If you don't admit that you're wrong, you're still wrong. You're just not going to get forgiven for it. So this is it. This is what we're talking about. When we're talking about laboring, it's relationship. Well, now we can understand why the enemy is so bent on dividing us and putting this group against this group against this group because you can't have relationship with people that you view as your enemy who are separate from you who you won't spend time with, right? This is what Jesus lived out his whole ministry. He sat with the sinners. He ate with the publicans. He ate, you know, with all of these different individuals, because he knew that that's the vineyard. That's the area that needs the good seed. And he demonstrated it, not just in word, but in deed. He met them where they were. Now, lastly, the harvest. Now we come to the point in the message where we're going to talk about the harvest. I mean, that's what this whole series is on, right? The Lord of the Harvest. Now, if I asked you what the harvest was, and just in general, most people would say, well, the harvest is, you know, people getting saved. Sure, that's part of it. It's us going out, working the field, people coming to know Christ. Absolutely, definitely part of it. But that's only a portion of it. Because the harvest, from what was said here, let's look in verse 39. 
the enemy that sowed is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. Now, pause right there. You know what that means? You are not done working in the field until you're dead or Jesus comes back. There's no retirement from God's vineyard. Right? You can get 65 and quit your, your regular job, retire, fantastic. There is no retirement from God's vineyard. Death or you get brought on up with Jesus. One of those two options is it. And rightfully so. Because what we're working toward goes far beyond anything we can do on this earth. Far beyond degrees or titles or money or any of those things. We're talking about eternity. And so now when I look out and I see this vineyard and I see these people, and sometimes in my flesh I want to be like, you people are so wicked. But then sometimes God has to say, yeah, that's why you're there. Because literally their eternal soul hangs in the balance. And who am I to say, okay, God, I did enough for you. I'm just going to go ahead and retire at this point. I don't want to talk to anyone else about you. I did my job. I'm done. Well, you may be done, but God's not done, and there's still a harvest that needs to happen. And there are people every day who need that word. They need that person to come along, to plant, to water, to be that encouragement. Sometimes evangelism doesn't have to be me walking up to you and preaching a sermon to you. Sometimes evangelism is simply me coming and saying, hey, are you doing all right today? I know you're going through kind of a tough situation. I just... Just want to let you know I'm thinking about you. I care for you. I didn't have to preach a message. I didn't have to quote a million scriptures at them. But I lived out in that short little action the love of Christ. The way that it says when we were enemies against God, yet he still loved us. That is how we work the vineyard. We need all the other stuff. We need prayer, we need fasting, we need reading the word. I'm not making one more or less important than the other. You need all of it. But I think that if we as a church are going to be the level of success that we want to be, we have to stop thinking of the harvest as some revival that shows up for a month and we get all these people and then now we have some extra people. That's not the harvest. That's part of it, but that's not the harvest. Because what good is it if we work real hard, we get people here, we double the size of the church, and then we stop work altogether, and all of those people go right back out to the world? Well, they're still not going to be a part of the harvest. And believe it or not, this in many ways is somewhat of an encouragement to myself. The reason I say that is because at the end of the day, the scripture tells us that the owner of the vineyard, the Lord of the harvest, God is the one who will send the reapers. God is the one who will go down and look at man and divide them into the tares and wheats. Not me. I don't have to be the one to stand up and say, oh yeah, you're not going to heaven. You may be. Okay, you'll probably go. That's not my job. And it's a good thing because... If I sent people to hell, Jesus would be like, yeah, well, you're a lot worse than them, so see how that works. But the reason I say that is because you can love people. You can tell them what they should be doing. You can explain to them. You don't have to lie and just make it seem like what they're doing is okay. But the good thing is, is that God is not expecting you to make that decision for them. All he wants you to do and me to do is to keep working the field. Keep planting the seed. If this one rejects you, fine. Kick off the dust and move on down. It is not our job to measure the success of the harvest. We just work and we let the one who is the Lord of the harvest give out the rewards that he wants to give when it's all said and done. That takes a lot of weight off of my shoulders. I don't have to be the one responsible. Man, they, they left God. Now God's going to be mad at me. No, that's not how that works. God just wants you to keep working the field. Let's all stand. I'm going to say one last thing. One last thing here, and then we're going to close in a word of prayer. Sometimes 
one of the things that can affect us in a fleshly way, our motivation, our, our feelings, our emotions toward church, toward work, one of the things that affects us is if we don't get the thing that we thought we should have, whether that's a ministry title or whether it's just a, I hosted an event and nobody showed up to it, or whether it's I invited 15 people to show up to church and not a single one of them showed up. We can look at that one result and say, well, I don't really matter because no one came to the thing that I tried to do or no one, you know, acknowledged my work or whatever the case is. But listen, the Lord of the harvest is the one who called you to his field. Not me, not Pastor Powell, not David Bernard, the Lord of the harvest. And he doesn't make mistakes. If he called you to work the field, it's because you matter. You may not have the thing you think you should, but that's okay because the Lord of the harvest knows what you need, what you should have. But even more than that, he knows who else needs you. And sometimes God has to move us into different places and we don't know why, but it's because God says, you're working the field for me. I'm the one who's controlling up here because I see where we need to be moving. I, need, I see where the field needs to be worked a little more. And so I, I want to encourage you with this. You matter. Your labor for God matters. He sees it. He will reward it and he will bless it. I pray that we open our eyes to look beyond the temporary flesh the temporary items of now, to see the eternal weight of what it is we're doing and realize that God doesn't make mistakes. If he called us, there's a reason he called us, and we're going to trust in that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest, that you know what we need when we need it. Even when we don't understand why our work doesn't seem to be fruitful, we know that you are always faithful. And what you said will come to pass because your word is forever established in heaven. That heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall not. So when it says some plant, some water, you give the increase. That is already settled. We trust that you know all things and you will help accomplish all things. We pray that you would give us strength and encouragement. Let us love our brothers and sisters. Let us encourage one another in the Lord and recognize that we must work together one workforce working in your vineyard for the harvest is coming and we await to see the Lord of the harvest return. We give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name.